That's right. I fixed the intro music. But that's not the only new thing around here. I'm Ari Lynette, and this is the first episode of season two of Ari Lynette is Trying His Best. Not only is there a shiny new episode, but you might have noticed a shiny new look for the podcast. Getting that season two upgrade, y'all. One of my big aims for season two is to really up the professionalism and hopefully be more consistent with episode releases. And that's why the break I took between seasons one and two has been this long, because I'm planning ahead. Another really awesome thing about this new season is that I'll be releasing it on audio platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. But also on YouTube. I've put up all of season one on there, and I'm planning to release the new episodes there a few days after their audio release on streaming. I'll get into it a little more in depth at the end of the episode. But what exactly do I have in store for you today, this being episode one of the new season? Yeah, from now on I can't just say episode one, two, or three, because there are now multiple seasons. <laughs> Which is really cool, but will make everything harder to reference. Packs of the job. But back to the topic. If you know me, you know that I'm a doll collector, and that's been something I've done for a long time. Like, I think it's been 10 years since I got my first doll, and over that time, I've seen a lot of different lines come and go. And that is what I want to talk about today. So, today I'll be trying my best to cover the past doll lines that I feel deserve a moment of recognition. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and sure, that's not much of a surprise. And I wanted to really kick off this season with a big interest of mine. I have a lot of random interests, if you, as you've seen on the podcast. But out of all of them, I think doll collecting has the most law to it. And because I've done it for such a long time, I feel like there's a lot of bits and pieces that are worth bringing up. That being said, not every single line lasted that long to give each one a full episode. So compilation it is. Right, so here are my guidelines for inclusion. In this episode, I will be talking about doll lines that have been discontinued, and by that, I mean they are no longer making new dolls. I know some lines will have had re-releases, or some dolls from these lines could still be hanging around in stores, but if they haven't had any new releases in the past two years, I'm counting it for this episode. I'm not going to cover every single doll line I've ever bought from, just the ones I think have interesting stories within them. I'm also not going to be talking about any doll lines that I've made episodes on already. I've said my piece on Monster High, mostly, and I've briefly covered the tie-in doll line for Descendants in their respective episodes. I also, also, double the also, will not be talking about Bratz or Ever After High because both of those are, in my mind, worthy of their own episodes. And eventually they will get their own episodes, but those are going to have to come later because I'd rather not bombard people with too much dull content at once. Otherwise, that's all I really need to say. Let's get onto all the dolls I've bought before. So I feel like it's almost unnecessary for me to talk about the phenomenon that was Monster High and its impact on the doll world. But if you look at the doll market from, let's say, early 2012 onwards, it's almost impossible not to talk about it. The fact is, Monster High left a big impact on not just what dolls that kids were playing with, or what collectors were interested in, but also what other companies were making. Just like you'd get knockoff Barbies and knockoff Bratz, surely enough you'd begin to see doll lines that sat on a scale of influenced by to flat out replicating what Monster High was doing. Obviously you have your fakes and your pound shop equivalents, but there were also plenty of legitimate toy companies jumping on the trend of spooky-themed dolls, or even just dolls that weren't based on human characters. More dolls with unusual skin tones and more of a fantasy lean. Monster High probably wasn't the first to do this, certainly not within the collector's world, where you had your living dead dolls and bleeding-edge goths. But as far as playline dolls, i.e. what you'd find in Toys R Us back when that was a thing, Monster High was most likely the leading influence in this influx of unusual dolls. You had Once Upon a Zombie, which mixed fairy tale princesses with gaunt grey zombie maidens. There was this line called Mystics, which very closely mirrored Monster High bodies and proportions, but had double-sided heads with two faces. Then you had as many discount-friendly knockoffs and outright plagiarizers as you could imagine. And then you had Bratzillas. These came out in 2012, and were actually the first dolls I'd ever bought for myself that weren't Monster High. And while they shared a similar supernatural theme, there were notable differences. For one, Bratzillas revolved around mostly witches, 
despite the fact that the name Bratzillas implies some kind of roaring kaiju, which honestly sounds like an absolute blast of a doll line. These were the witchy cousins of the Bratz, and they were made by a very prevalent company in the doll world, MGA Entertainment, who also makes Bratz. Yasmin's cousin was named Yasmina, Chloe's cousin was named Cloetta, and Jade's cousin was named Jade. They, they didn't really do any changes with her name. Then you had Sasha's cousin, Sasha Bella, and Megan's cousin, named, you guessed it, Megana. The creativity is outstanding. These characters all go to a school for magic and fashion. Each one has a distinctive witch mark on their body, which is absolutely not a tattoo. Get off your soapbox, Jill. And each character has their own specific magical power. Jade can heal broken hearts. Yasmina can see the future. Sasha Bella communicates with animals. Megana flies. And Cloetta can change things into other things. They also have pets, which were released separately from the dolls. But the initial international release of them had the dolls packaged with their pets. And that's the release that I got all the original dolls from. The pets got separate releases primarily because they weren't just lumps of plastic with no function. Some of them could light up, others had sound compartments and different articulation functions. Whereas the Monster High pets were just... plastic. Now we've gone through the lore of the series, let's talk about the dolls. The dolls had body proportions more alike to Barbie than Monster High, but they had the larger heads that were characteristic of Bratz. However, the heads had completely new moulds featuring inset eyes, or glass eyes as they're more commonly called. These were absolutely beautiful, and one of the best things about the dolls. Their bodies featured all of the points that a Monster High doll did in terms of articulation, so the neck, shoulders, elbows, wrists, hips, and knees, but also with an added torso joint. Again, I feel like the bodies of these dolls were something really awesome. The original dolls came with doll stands, which I'm pretty sure got dropped quickly after the first wave, as well as full outfits that included a cape and a pointy little plastic witch hat. The outfits of this first wave were interesting, with some genuinely interesting ensembles from Yasmina, Megana, and Sasha Bella. And then you had Cloetta and Jade with these weird pleather dresses. Jade got away with it as she had some nice print and embellishments on it, but poor Cloetta just got a bunch of plastic necklaces on the outfit instead. Though it's nothing abominable, and her whole split-down-the-middle colour-blocking vibe is interesting enough to stand out. So, the outfits are decent, the bodies are great, the faces are really great, but what about the hair? <laughs> this is where we run into a hurdle. The first wave of Bratzillas were notorious among the doll community for their rather unpleasant-feeling hair, and for once, gel had nothing to do with it. If you look at Monster High dolls, they'd often either have fluffy Kanekalon hair or the sleeker Saran hair, which were both quite nice to the touch. But this first wave of Bratzillas had very cheap-feeling hair fibre that was at best a little oddly textured and at worst equivalent to fishing wire. Many people at the time refer to this hair as nylon, but I believe it actually isn't nylon and it's closer to polypropylene from what I've heard. And hair on dolls is very important because everyone likes to brush a doll's hair. And when that hair feels less soft and silky and more like the fibres in a broom, it kind of dampens the luster. I will say Yasmina got off best with this hair as it was styled into this complex twin braids with matching braided space buttons, so not much of it was free to be felt. Then with Jade, it was noticeable, but less so because her hair was shoulder length. Cloetto and Sasha Bella both had basically the same hairstyles, long, straight, and with a fringe. And that's when you could really start to tell how cheap the fibre was. But nothing, and I mean nothing, compared to the fresh hell of what they did to make Anna. Her beautiful curly red hair, as shown in her promo pictures, was not what you'd get in the box. <laughs> Instead, you'd get a frizzy, untangleable, untamable mop that was somewhere between a dust bunny and a brillo pad. And yes, I did eventually manage to get it to a less dire state, but it took a lot of time and a lot of brushing and it still didn't turn out that nice. <laughs> as far as the hair went, it was mostly the thing that let these dolls down. Things did improve with later waves in the series. Autumn 2013's Back to Magic Wave was comparatively a lot more pleasant as far as hair was concerned. And even in the spring of that year, the new Fiona Finn's doll had crimped hair that felt much more like the luxurious doll hair you'd get from a Monster High. Sure, we stopped seeing doll stands included, but it's a lot easier and way less time consuming to get a doll stand from online and plonk a doll in it, 
than it is to reroute a full head of doll hair. So, by and large, Bratzillas were a pretty decent competitor to Monster High, and one of the few that actually came close to the quality of Monster High. But from the day that these dolls were so much as whispers in the forums that people called copycat, Bratzillas was a spin-off to the Bratz line that had very little relation to Bratz other than names, with a scale and aesthetic far more akin to Monster High. Of course, people saw that, and had things to say about that, and of course there was a layer of truth to that. Obviously, MGA saw the popularity of Monster High and wanted to have a slice of that spooky doll pie, which was an absolute cash cow at the time. That's like practically expected from competing toy companies. In fact, Mattel, who made Monster High, is notorious for cashing in on doll trends. Barbie was practically copied from a German doll named Build Lily, and once Gem and the Holograms got popular in the 80s, you just know Mattel had their competing Barbie and the Rocker series in the works. Even as far as Bratz is concerned, Mattel tried to compete by bringing out Mycene dolls, which did decently, and then a whole other line called Flavors, which only lasted about a year or so. Then when Mattel and MGA had their big legal battle and Mattel got an early victory, they planned on making their own line of Bratz. Some of the prototype heads even leaked online. So, like, Mattel getting a little sip of their own medicine is nothing in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> Though by the looks of it, you could just tell that MGA was relishing in this little mini-competition between Monster High and Bratzillas. Once Monster High brought out their Create a Monster line, where you could build your own doll, not too long after, you could find a very similar, if not word-for-word, Bratzillas equivalent called Switcherwitch. And to add insult to injury, the Switcherwitch line actually fixed a lot of the problems that people had with the Creator Monster dolls. They came with two full bodies instead of just having one torso piece. They both came with wigs, and the add-on packs also had full bodies. And yes, these bodies did have the torso joint from Bratzilla's, which the Creator Monsters did not have. So like, well played, MGA. Not only did you copy Mattel, but you also outsmarted them. And for the record, I actually think the execution of the Switcherwitch Bratzillas was better than what Monster High did with Creator Monster. That opinion might be controversial, but look at the material. In 2014, MGA decided to put Bratz on hiatus in order to build up to a brand reboot in 2015, and with that, Bratzillas was finished. There wasn't really any clarification or closure, but that announcement put the writing on the wall that they had a bigger plan for Bratz, and that plan didn't include Bratzillas. Dare I say, I feel like the line ended on a high, if not a bigger high than when it started, at least as far as quality goes. Better quality hair, overall, more consistent designs, and a little more of an individual route for the line. The doll boxes and commercials advertised the line as Bratzilla's House of Witches, naturally with a Z, with Bratzilla's in small print to distinguish itself from both its parent line and Monster High. We also got to see more characters that weren't cousins to the existing Bratz girls, like a vampire girl named Vampolina, and the two new girls from the Back to Magic line, who were just exceptional. Yes, there were still accusations of copying from the Monster High fan base, but it still felt like Bratzilla's was at least evolving. And when the line ended, it ended in a good place. I think MGA is really good at knowing when to end things with a line, at least most of the time. Instead of trying to make a bunch of changes and dragging out lines as much as possible, they often end lines quietly just as they are. It means that the lines are shorter, but it also means they're more consistently good quality. I wouldn't want to see what happened with Monster High or Ever After High go down with any of the lines on the market today. The end of Bratzilla's also felt like MGA's way of saying, okay, we had our fun, we capitalised on Mattel's success, but now we need to get to work on our own success. And though the, the eventual Bratz reboot didn't work like MGA wanted it to, they would find a very different success story. But that's a whole other, more current story. Now let's move on to another past doll line. This one is by a company named Spinmaster, who wasn't really a huge player in the doll market until around 2009 with the launch of Live Dolls. I'd never bought any of these dolls, but they'd done decently well and were on the market until around the end of 2012. They were praised for their inset eyes, nice articulation, and wide variety of wigs, bearing a more realistic appearance. But in 2013, once Spinmaster had moved on from Live Dolls, their next doll line would do the opposite of all three of those things. This new line, called La Di Da, would have dolls featuring painted eyes, less articulation, hair rooted into the head, and very different body proportions compared to the Live Dolls. 
So let's take a look. The line was based around a character named Dee, hence the name La Dee Da, who ran an eponymous fashion line of the same name. She would design costumes for herself and her friends, Cyan, Tylee, and Sloane, and each wave of the dolls would revolve around a specific design theme. The dolls themselves took a hard turn from the realistic style of Liv dolls by having almost pull-up-like proportions. Large heads, very thin bodies, and overall a more petite stature. They had knee joints, but no extra articulation on their arms other than the standard shoulder joint you'd see on pretty much every doll out there. The different themes of each line were pretty creative as far as themes go. Some lines will give you the tried and true signature outfit, then a party line, then a sleepwear line, then a beach line, just your average doll line themes. But Lardy Da would have some really interesting themes. The line launched with Dee's signature doll, none of the other characters had signature dolls, with hers being a New York theme, as well as a line for Dee's birthday party where all the characters wore candy-themed garments. There was a garden tea party line with a big insect influence, a fruit-themed budget line named Juicy Crush, even two dolls that represented pop art and impressionism. One other line that was released in the first wave of dolls was the Runaway Vacay line, which has aged... interestingly. <laughs> this theme would see all of the girls go to a different country and dress in chic designs inspired by that country's culture. You see where this is going. <laughs> Just for context, Sloane is the one ambiguously black girl in the line, and all the rest are vaguely white or white passing. So when you see these dolls and they're very obvious cultural outfits, it's a little unsettling. Sloane's outfit representing Kenya is stereotypical though cute, and Cyan's Parisian outfit probably fares the best. Tylee's Tokyo outfit could go either way depending on how you interpret Tylee's race, which could be East Asian but could very easily be white. There's no real evidence to either side. But the one that I think fares the worst is Dee's Bollywood look which is a beautiful blue ensemble with striking pink hair, but it is a white girl in a bindi. Like, when I was younger and I was interested in the dolls, I didn't know very much at all about cultural appropriation. But now in 2021, I do know about it, and this line kind of screams it. <laughs> it's a shame because the dolls have quite a bit of nostalgia to me, but I think that cultural appropriation is far more important matter than a bit of broken bass nostalgia. So yeah. I do love the one Ladi Da doll I have, which is the Kenyan Sloan doll, but like I said, the Runway VK line has aged with very mixed results. One big part of this ambiguity issue with the characters is that Ladi Da had nearly no real accompanying media surrounding it. Most of the time, all of the doll lines around you would have some kind of web series or book series, but Ladi Da only had a couple of online ebooks, which had voice actors and pop-up visuals. They were cute, but they told more backstory to the lines than they did to the characters. I couldn't tell you any distinct characteristics between these characters other than their appearances and the fact that Dee has a pet dog. Like, that's it. So I think that didn't help the line, and by the end of 2014, the line was pretty much dead in the water. This was a real shame if you saw some of the prototype images that leaked around this time, because it showed that there were plans for more of these dolls. There was going to be a second wave of the Juicy Crush line, with more fruit-themed fashions, and an absolutely stunning circus-themed line that I think might be the best theme in the whole series. Both of those went unreleased. There were other prototypes of schoolgirl-themed dolls, probably the closest thing we'd get to signature dolls for the other characters. Plus, Winter and Valentine's Special Edition dolls for D. None of these hit the shelves. And I understand why Lardy Doll dolls didn't stick. I think their lack of articulation in a doll market, practically screaming for it at the time, didn't help. And while they had creativity, this was marred by the simple, skimpy outfits and some questionable theming. <laughs> Spin Master hasn't really taken another stab at the fashion doll market, and it's a shame to see that because I feel like competition can be really valuable in the market. And if you dedicate a lot of effort to a line and really commit to it, it can really help the line take off. Speaking of effort and commitment, oof, let's get on to the next story. 
So, in 2015, Disney announced a brand new franchise that would be spearheaded by Disney Publishing Worldwide, aimed towards a tween audience. That brand was Star Darlings. This is set in a world called Starland, where 12 magical girls have been chosen to go down to Earth, or as they call it, Wish World, and grant special wishes to provide power to Starland and stop negative wish energy from threatening their world. Each of the girls also corresponds with one of the 12 zodiac signs. However, most of the time, the series focuses on five of them. You have Libby, who's bubbly and optimistic and represents Libra. There's Leona, the bold and confident singer, who represents Leo. Then Vega, who's a star student and represents Virgo. Then Scarlet, who's moody and rebellious, but very fascinated with Earth, representing Scorpio. And finally, Sage, who's very new to all of this and is the main character, representing Sagittarius. Sage happens to be my favourite one, because not only does she share the same birthday and star sign as me, she's also really purple, which <laughs> really shows my standards in picking favourite characters. Out of the other seven girls, you have Sage's best friend, Cassie, who's sweet and reserved, representing Cancer, and also she and Sage are adorable together and, like, prime shipping fodder. The other six don't really get much personality in the web series, other than just what they do and what signs they represent. There's Clover the DJ for Capricorn, Adora the fashion designing scientist for Aquarius, Piper the ethereal and zen poet for Pisces, Astra the hotshot athlete for Aries, Tessa the chef for Taurus, and her little sister Gemma for Gemini. As a Disney franchise, you can imagine it got a lot of media, but the main ones we'll be talking about are the dolls, of course, <laughs> and then the web series and the books. We'll start with the dolls, which were made by Jack Specific. Not all of the characters got dolls in some form or another, only seven of them got represented in the doll line. And this is cited by a lot of people as a shortcoming for the line. We'll get onto that. There are two separate ranges in the line. Their full colour bold Starland looks, which feature their signature vivid coloured hair and pearly skin. Then their subdued Wishworld looks that are intended to blend in with the surroundings with a more natural look. The dolls have the same articulation points as Monster High, but with more brat-like body proportions. However, the elbow, hip, and knee joints often had limited ranges of motion, and it would just be a bit problematic. Getting these dolls to sit was not a fun task. But they did have beautiful hair with a nice texture, albeit often heavily gelled, and stunning inset eyes. The outfits were generally more conservative, with most of the dolls having leggings and longer sleeves. I'm not sure how intentional that was, but I like dolls with trousers and long sleeve tops, because usually companies will cheap out by making smaller pieces. Like how tons of the Monster High boys would come with shorts and like, they don't even look good. So I'm pro longer sleeves and trousers on dolls. <laughs> As dolls, the Star Darlings are beautiful and really have this youthful look that's not childish. There's a really great balance between them being mature enough to support the more detailed lore from the books, but also made to feel like relatable, not sexualized characters. That's something they really have in their favour. But I also think the articulation lets them down, and they should have really kept testing how they'd pose and how they'd sit, because it's not great. That being said, the hair, the outfits, and definitely their faces make up for this. They are absolutely beautiful dolls, and the quality is there. <clears throat> so, we've discussed the quality of the dolls, but what about the media surrounding it? Within the franchise, you'll notice two main forms of narrative. The web series and the book series. The web series is nice with some decent animation and helps to give you the visuals of the world and the characters, but the real gold is in the books. They first released 12 books, one for each of the 12 girls, which really gets you invested in the world of Starland and how the school works. The lore of it all is honestly really detailed, far more than what you see in the web series. There are helper robots, everything's so much more technologically advanced, and you can tell that the writers of this series really wanted to create an in-depth universe. There's even a character that represents Sophiacus, the 13th zodiac sign, I can imagine a bunch of other people not even looking that kind of stuff up if they were writing the series, but you can tell that Ahmet Zappa and Shana Muldoon Zappa were passionate about the world building and really considering it. You also get more in-depth looks at the personalities of more than just the five main characters, plus you get to join them on their wish-granting missions. 
The web series doesn't really go anywhere near that kind of investment and is a lot more surface level. It's more establishing the world in simple terms and showing slices of life in that world, which is neat, but it's not much more than that. Some of the episodes are just plain questionable. Like, there's this one episode where Libby is being incredibly talkative and, like, excited about things, which is understandable. The other girls are annoyed, so they get Clover the DJ to make a song remixing Libby's repetitive conversations, which is, at least I think, pretty scummy to do to your friends. <laughs> but Libby thinks it's funny, so it's all good, right? Yeah, that was a rough episode. Also, in a post-Monster High world, it's almost expected that there will be a menagerie of themed puns. Bratzillas did it, la da did it, and of course, Star Darlings finds each and every way to ham-fist the word star into nearly every sentence of dialogue and lore. <laughs> Subtlety is not the strength of this franchise, at least in the web series. The books do incorporate this a lot more organically. <laughs> One other bit of media I want to mention is the few songs that they released for Star Darlings, including the theme song, which are unironically really excellent songs. <laughs> I couldn't not mention those. So, you have a fun and visually exciting twin franchise with a book series that details an expansive world and a positive inspirational message in its marketing. Where did it go wrong? Well, truth be told, as far as I'm concerned, it didn't really do anything wrong. What Ahmet Zappa and Shana Muldoon Zappa did with this franchise, and particularly with the books, was excellent. And I believe they're the last people to blame for the franchise fizzling out by the start of 2017. In fact, I blame Disney for this. They made multiple crucial mistakes with this line, and boy oh boy, let me count the ways they fucked up this one. First one, them focusing too much on the five main characters. <laughs> this meant that we rarely got to see any of the other girls aside from some cameo appearances, and if you didn't read the books, chances are you might not have even remembered their names. Second one, the absolute fuckery that was the doll launch. Instead of releasing different characters in different waves, they decided to release, and I kid you not, four different versions of the exact same doll in the exact same outfit with different accessories. They released identical versions of Sage, Libby, Leona, Vega, and Scarlet four times, and yet we didn't see a single doll for Tessa, Gemma, Adora, Clover, or Astra. There was the first launch, the Star Glow Edition, which featured chunky light-up doll stands and a weird pendant charm bracelet thing and was overpriced as all hell. Then the second launch, which was the basic dolls that only got released in the US, and we had to wait over six months to get them overseas, and then what happened? We got a different version, where Disney decided to give them music instruments and release them as the Sparkle Rock Editions. And then, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, oh no, they released versions of the dolls packaged with the books as well. <laughs> At least those ones came with something valuable next to the doll. Like, the books are amazing, I'm not going to complain about that. We did get Wishworld versions of Cassie and Piper, and we also saw a Starland version of Cassie get released as a Toys R Us exclusive, along with a new version of Sage. But before then, the fans got worried that we wouldn't even get that. This happened to be the last doll release in the whole line. The third problem, I think, is that when people looked at the webisodes, they saw something a bit obnoxious and pun-laden, perhaps not realising how much better the books were. <laughs> if I were making the web series, I'd definitely have mirrored the books more, even if it was just going through the wish missions, maybe then people would have given Star Darling more of a chance. Worst of all, when Disney realised that they had made these mistakes, instead of fixing them or working around the issues, they just cancelled all of the future books, the future doll releases, and drop the franchise altogether. The other girls that never got dolls? Nope, that's not happening. Libby and Leona's Wishworld dolls that got promo images? Nope, unreleased. The web series? What web series? They just cut the cord like it was nothing. <laughs> and this is Disney we're talking about! An absolute money pit of a company who screwed up the launch of Star Darlings and then just called it a day. And that was so awful! It was awful for all of the fans who wanted to see those missing dolls, all of the people who read and loved the books. But most importantly, it was awful for the Zappers who wrote an immersive and interesting world and had it thrown aside by a company that just didn't care. It deeply saddens me that the Star Darlings never got the full rollout they deserved. I would have loved to get the dolls for Astra, Adora, Clover, even some of the Wishworld versions of the characters. 
who, while being less vibrant and colourful than the Stalin versions, were still beautiful. I would have loved it to have the same kind of following as Witch did, with that expansive law getting shown as a full TV series. Maybe they could have had a series on Disney+. And I think Disney could have helped the Zappers to do that. But they just didn't. Right, so that was an intense and passionate tirade. <laughs> so now let's go on to something a little more successfully managed. Let's talk about Project MC Squared, a line that began in 2015 alongside MGA's reboot of Bratz. Surprisingly, out of the two lines, it was Project MC Squared that lasted longer, getting new dolls all the way into 2018, whereas by that point, Bratz was preparing for another retooling, this time aimed towards the collector's market. But this episode isn't about Bratz. This is about quite a different line that aimed to prove that smart was the new cool. Project MC Squared wasn't just a doll line, as it also included a line of science sets. The main theme of the line was encouraging STEM in young girls, or as they opted for instead, STEAM, which included art in the mix. The initial aim seemed to be, in shorter terms, science for girls without being science for girls. Whether they achieved this aim is a very mixed bag and varied depending on which wave we're talking about. But the science sets that got released alongside the dolls were initially quite good at this and then gradually got less and less good and you'd see more stereotypically girly takes on science in later releases. The dolls themselves were a main part of the line and the deluxe versions of the dolls would include smaller experiments for you to try out. And as with the standalone science sets, the themes of the experiments would vary over the years. The first wave was a very unisex affair as far as the experiments went, with the classic volcano experiment, a lava lamp, a light-up glow stick, and blueprints that you'd reveal with water to use to assemble a skateboard. Then by the last wave, all of the experiments was some sort of makeup item. And though I think anyone can have fun with makeup, you know executives don't think like that. But either way, the dolls themselves consistently maintained good quality with their outfits, which were detailed and made of different fun individual pieces, and good hair texture, albeit a little bit difficult to wrangle for some of the curlier-haired dolls. They had beautiful faces with inset eyes, and depending on the version of the doll, you'd either get a core doll with basic articulation, or a deluxe doll with experiment and full articulation. Some of the dolls had feet made for high-heeled shoes, whereas others had flat feet made for sneakers. The only real issue with these dolls was their bodies. While the deluxe dolls had great articulation, the joints were often flimsy and the dolls felt a little hollow. You certainly couldn't stand one up on their own. And in the first wave of deluxe dolls, they even came with stands. That practice was discontinued quickly after that first wave. For many people, this has been a big enough issue for them to not really collect the dolls. However, I was clearly not one of those people, <laughs> as I currently own all but two of the deluxe dolls released from every wave of Project MC Squared dolls. For me, the faces and the outfits are just that good, and the articulation isn't exactly impeded or made frustrating like it was with Star Dollings. They're just a little flimsy, but I like them a lot, and I really got into collecting them. Time to go on to the characters. The line started with four main characters, with two new ones added later on. The lead character is Michaela. She's a focused and reserved teenage secret agent who moves to Maywood Glen Academy, which happens to have the same initials as MGA Entertainment, who makes the dolls. She then meets three fellow teenagers who started to get suspicious about her. Those girls are Adrian, a Spanish culinary chemist with a bubbly personality, Bryden, a technology expert with a love for social media, and Cameron, an engineer with a high IQ. They're all intelligent and talented in their own right, but they're also less serious than Michaela, which ticks her off quite a bit. One mission later, and the girls join Michaela as agents of Innovate, a secretive group of female secret agents on a mission to protect the world. Later on, we get to meet Devon, a reclusive artist, and Ember, a sweet southern botanist, who both end up joining the team. Devon only got one deluxe doll and two core dolls, whereas Ember got new dolls in every subsequent wave. The first three waves of dolls are all in the theme of signature casual wear that the girls wear during missions. And then this is a similar practice with the core dolls, only with more simple outfits. And wave three is when we first meet Devon and Ember. Wave four is a formal wear line, wave five is themed to fantasy masquerade party, and the final wave is supposed to be glam rock stars, or at least that's what it is in the Netflix series. Speaking of which, 
I took an awfully long time to get to the Netflix series, but yes, Project Empty Squared began in 2015 with not just a doll line, but also a live-action series of full-length episodes. The first season is basically like a film split into three parts, then the rest of the seasons are a bit more episodic. Overall, it's definitely aimed to a tween audience, and it's not exactly Big Little Lies level of peak television, but it's fun and it provides a good narrative foundation for the line. It can be cheesy and a bit much, but there's a lot to enjoy about it too. Also, side note, it's canonically confirmed that Ember has two moms, which I think is pretty awesome. It's also great to see tie-in content that isn't just a bunch of cheap CGI webisodes. There is quite a bit of short-form content on the Project MT Squared YouTube channel, but it's more about demonstrating different experiments, and they do get the actresses from the show to do the videos, so it's a lot less shoehorned in and feels like nice organic content. One thing worth noting is that the eye colours of the dolls don't match the eye colours of the actresses, which in itself isn't really that big of a deal, but apparently MGA thought it was because on the front of the doll boxes they put a picture of the actress in character. But with Michaela and Bryden, they photoshopped the eye colour of the actresses, who both have brown eyes, on the front of the boxes from their natural brown to green. And it does not look good. It's not blaringly obvious, but once you see it, you can't really unsee it. I feel like MGA should have just not done that. Like, it's okay. These kids can suspend their disbelief. And even adult collectors don't really care. Like, none of us are going on Amazon and posting one-star reviews of these dolls. Like, these eye colors are not show accurate. Like, seriously, none of us care. And funnily enough, there was a variant of the final Deluxe Bryden doll they made from Wave 6, where she had hazel brown eyes instead of green eyes. I managed to get that variant when I got Wave 6 Bryden, which made me very happy, because she's beyond stunning, and it's great to have a unique variant of a character. One thing that has kind of been a mystery for me is the status of Devon as a character. She's marketed as a main character, but never got as many dolls or episode attention as Ember did when she was introduced. Like, when Ember came in, she fit the show like a glove. But Devin kind of just popped in and popped out and then popped back in one day and she had a different face. Yeah, they recast Devin in season 5 and she isn't even in season 6, aside from a flashback. They put her on a bus. But that's just fascinated me so much because it was a bit of a shock, but it was also not at all a shock. Because if you look at the YouTube channel... All of the deluxe dolls from the first three waves got their own video demonstrating the experiments featuring the actresses from the show. Except for Devon's. I still have no idea how to make Devon's puffy paint, and it kills me after all this time. <laughs> Maybe the YouTube stuff wasn't part of the main show's contract, and Alyssa Lynch, who played Devon, just didn't want to do that stuff, which, fair enough. But it did look a little ghoulish back then. After season four, it must have just been the case that she didn't want to come back to the show, I can't speak for her experiences on the show, but she I did see that she posted an Instagram story one time from her last day shooting, and what I can say is that she did not like the wig they gave her, <laughs> which honestly, I can't blame her. They gave Devon this ratty black and teal ombre wig, sometimes they'd style it in a ponytail to match her deluxe doll, and it would look even worse like that. And this wasn't supposed to be like a disguise wig like they did with one of Michaela's outfits. This was intended to look like her actual hair. <laughs> Ironically, when Devon got recast in season 5, I'm almost certain they gave the new actress Maddie Phillips a different, better wig. Uh, yikes. But either way, the history of Project Empty Squared and wigs is a rough one to say the least. Part of me also thinks that this is why most of the later doll releases didn't feature the actress on the front of the box. Neither Wave 5 or 6, nor the last wave of core dolls, feature pictures of the actresses. Did I just say pictresses? Wow, we really are making new words up today, aren't we? But weirdly enough, that last wave of core dolls originally did feature pictures of the actresses. These were pictures from an early AliExpress listing, which I've actually posted on one of my old Flickr accounts back in the Animation days. And it was the set of six dolls with the actresses on the front of the boxes. And because Devon's doll was based on a look from season four, it featured Alyssa Lynch on the front as Devon. And then presumably MGA realized that the doll's release would coincide with season five, where Maddie Phillips would be playing Devon, and thought that it would just confuse things even more. 
So, when this wave of core dolls did get released, there were no pictures of the actresses on any of the dolls in the wave, not just Evans. Though I also think maybe in the later seasons, they just didn't bother with doing proper photo shoots for the deluxe dolls, hence why waves five and six don't have the actress photos either. But nonetheless, it's a weird rabbit hole to go down, and I don't think we'll ever have the full picture on this story. Over the past few years, I've been on a bit of a mission to complete my collection of Deluxe Project MC Squared dolls. For Christmas one year, I'd asked for a bunch of them, and while my dad was able to order them all, the site he ordered them from didn't send them all. Yeah, so this is going to be another rant, but Benson's Emporium is forever on my shit list for not sending four of the seven dolls my dad had ordered. Instead, they sent three of the right dolls and then extras of those dolls. I think they sent like three of the Wave 4 Ember dolls instead. And because they'd sent over dolls, even though they weren't the right ones, they argued that they did the job and got to keep the money, despite the fact it seems like they never had the stock of those missing four. That's why I really do not support Benson's Emporium, despite the fact a lot of collectors do. They left my dad out of pocket, and while I was able to understand the circumstance and it didn't exactly ruin Christmas, it was still frustrating to have this happen, not just to me, but also to my dad, who was just trying his best to get Christmas done right. So with that, I managed to get three of the seven, leaving me with a missing four. Over time, I managed to find two of them on Amazon and another at TK Maxx, but the final one I'd been looking for, I actually just got at the start of 2021. That doll is the Wave 4 version of Bryden in the formal wear outfit. I found her on AliExpress, just the doll without any accessories, but uh, at this point I figured it would be my best bet. She came quickly and packaged securely in around two weeks, which is quicker than a time frame it gave me of 20 to 40 days. And she's beautiful, great hair, gorgeous outfit, and her face screening has this striking silver eyeshadow. I also got another Project MC Squared doll, and this one was kind of a hybrid. It's another Bryden, but with the outfit from one of her core dolls on an articulated body from a deluxe doll. Like, this doll wasn't released like that, but I'm not going to complain if it means I'm getting more articulation. And then the third doll I got from AliExpress. Well, that leads on to the final line I'm talking about today. In late 2008, MGA was going through a pretty intense court battle with Mattel over allegations that the designer of Breaths, Carter Bryant, had created the line while working at Mattel. At one point, MGA was ordered to forfeit the entire Bratz brand, including trademarks, to Mattel. This was later struck down, and eventually MGA was declared to have full ownership of the Bratz franchise. However, there was a time where it seemed like MGA wouldn't have Bratz anymore, so they got to work on a new line to replace it. This line was released in 2009 and called Moxie Girls, again with a Z, because why not? These dolls were more distinctly tween-like and less mature than the Bratz, with more conservative fashions and sweeter facial screenings. They achieved a decent run up till 2014, but there was also a sister line that came out in 2010 and reached quite a different audience, called Moxie Teens, also with a Z. I don't have any of the Moxie girls, but just recently from AliExpress, I was able to get a hold of my first Moxie Teen. Whereas Moxie girls are very distinctly tweens, the characters from the Moxie teens line were all college-age girls who were, in their own words, out on their own and living their dreams. Whereas Moxie girls had painted eyes and peg feet like the brats, Moxie teens had striking inset eyes and more conventional doll feet. Whereas Moxie girls were roughly the same size as brats, Moxie teens towered over even Barbie at 14 inches. Whereas Moxie girls never had articulation other than the standard neck, shoulders, and hips, and also feet, Moxie teens had full articulation, including ankle joints and a bust joint, making them some of MGA's most articulated dolls ever. They had stylish fashions with mix and match pieces, and in the first two waves, they featured wigs that you could change. In the third wave, they gave the dolls hair rooted into the head instead, and I believe there was a re-release of the original dolls with rooted hair instead of wigs later on down the line. And for the first two waves, you could pick from four different characters. There's Melrose, a brainy and beautiful college girl who's politically minded and has her own podcast. Hello, fellow podcaster! <laughs> There's Tristan, an outside-the-box trendsetter who fought her way to earning an apprenticeship under a top fashion designer. There's Arizona a driven and organized songstress with dreams of becoming a Broadway star, 
And then there's Bijou, a globe-trotting photographer with an eye on world events and philanthropy. <laughs> what a word to get through, philanthropy. <laughs> these biographies are the only real piece of media that establishes personalities for these girls, but they're actually really in-depth compared to a lot of other doll bios, which are just like, favourite colour, favourite activity, etc. And you get the feeling that these are characters with fully formed personalities, even if there's no web series or narrative to show it. The first two waves feature all four of these girls, and in the third wave, instead of Arizona, we get to meet two new characters, a red-haired girl named Lee and a boy named Gavin. The third wave is a formal wear line, and all of the girls have relatively similar gowns, and Gavin has a suit. The girls also get to wear more intricate hairstyles now that they don't have wigs. There were only three waves of Moxie teens, aside from that aforementioned re-release of the first wave, and while these dolls were admired by collectors and praised for their quality, there were some things that held the line back. Their larger size at 14 inches meant that not as much doll clothing would fit them, and their faces, while beautiful and striking to collectors, came across as a little uncanny to some others. And then, the wig mechanism. The original dolls came with wigs and hats to go over them, and while I've never had experience with a wigged Moxie teen, from what I've heard, the wigs have a lot of trouble with staying on. They don't have full pegs like the Live Doll wigs did, and often it would be hard to have the wig not fall off. This is probably why they switched to the rooted hair for the last wave. And while we never got to see new Moxie teens after this third wave, there was plenty of collector's demand for more. Nowadays, it's quite hard to find an affordably priced Moxie teen. The RRP was about £20 from what I remember, but for a complete out-of-the-box doll, you're looking for at least £50 to £70, and if you want one mint in the box, prepare to pay somewhere in the hundreds. It's even more rare if you want the Bijou doll, as her being the black girl in the line made her a victim to a not-so-great trend within MGA's doll lines. Because often, when MGA released a doll line, the black girl would either be shipped in a separate case, or be in only one of the case assortments. They did it with Bratz and Sasha, they did it with Bratzillas and Sasha Bella, they did it in a few waves of Project MT Squared with Bryden, they did it with Moxie Girls a lot, and sometimes their black character, Bria, just wouldn't appear in most lines. And of course, they did it in all three waves of Moxie Teens with Bijou. This meant that even if a lot of retailers stocked Moxie Teens, some of them would only stock the assortment with the other three girls and not bother with the extra case. I really hate this practice because, first of all, black girls deserve to have dolls like them represented in every case assortment, in every store where they sell them. They shouldn't be put in a separate case. I'm not sure if it's a demand thing or if there's some kind of research backing up their practice, but in my mind, it's fundamentally wrong. Include the black girls in all of the case assortments because, more often than not, a lot of the black dolls are the standout dolls in the line. Sasha got some of the best dolls in Bratz, the closest I'd ever got to buy a Moxie girl was Bria, and there's a reason I started off a lot of Project MC Squared lines by getting the Bryden dolls, because they're just the best ones. But even aside from this issue, getting one of the more common dolls like Tristan or Melrose was difficult enough. I never bought a Moxie teen when they were in actual stars, and the minute I realised I wanted some was the minute I realised they were very hard to get. So. Imagine my surprise and joy when I saw that the AliExpress listing for Loose Project Empty Squared dolls also had a Moxie teen? And not just any Moxie teen, it was Bijou. I decided that along with finally getting that last bride I needed, I'd be a fool not to at least try and get this doll. She was just under £15 as well for a full doll with outfit. No box, but at that point I'd given up on ever finding one mint for a non-extortionate price. So I grabbed her. They also had the Lee doll from the third wave, who I was going to get next, but then she went out of stock. But one Moxie teen is better than zero, and when Bijou arrived, it was love at first sight. What's interesting is that this doll is another hybrid of sorts. Maybe not in terms of body, but definitely with her outfit. The doll is a third wave Bijou with rooted hair, pulled back with a braid. But her outfit is the one from her second wave doll. She was missing her accessories, belt, jewellery, and hat, but she did have her socks, boots, shorts, top, and that gorgeous white cardigan. My only issue was that her hair came feeling quite greasy, but I was able to fix that with a quick shampoo. 
I took a little bit of the hair that was pulled back and draped it down to the side of her face to emulate a little more of the style from the earlier dolls, where they all had the free-flowing hair. And with that, I had my first ever Moxie teen. Bijou is absolutely stunning, with a unique face, great quality outfit, nice hair fibre, and very long legs. This is a doll unlike quite a lot in my collection, and she now stands proud on my desk, alluring all that see her. Except for my sister, who thinks she's a bit scary. And with that, we've come to the end of Season 2's first episode. If you're craving more doll-related talk, I am planning a couple of different doll-related episodes in the future. Just not next week, because right now I'm all dolled out. However, if you do want to follow my doll-related antics, you can follow my new doll-focused Instagram account, at Dolls. I'll leave it in the description. And if you don't want to do that, and you'd rather just listen to me talk about something else, that is not a problem, because I talk about a lot of stuff on this podcast. So your first step can be to take a look at the other episodes I've done. There's no better time to catch up on season one before getting into all this new 2021 action. You can subscribe to the podcast, leave a review depending on the platform, or share it to your socials using the hashtag tryinghisbest. Yeah, I'm trying out a hashtag too for this season. Lots of exciting developments. And if you want to catch up with all the stuff I'm getting up to, you can find my Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube in the description, plus the podcast's home on Anchor. And starting from now, you can also listen to the podcast on YouTube, which I mentioned at the beginning, but now I can properly lay down the law on the YouTube schedule. New episodes will be audio exclusives from their release on Sunday until Friday, where I'll be releasing them every week on their very own podcast channel, it's new and shiny and a great option if you prefer listening over there. And if you are listening from YouTube, you can leave a comment and a like. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast channel. But that's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you all enjoyed this upcoming season. I'm both excited and holding my breath for something to go wrong. But either way, I'll be trying my best as always. So, I've been Ari Lynette and until next time, keep trying your best everyone. Bye for now! Thank you.